Welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the busy intersection where faith and reason meet and sometimes collide. I'm Doug Keck, kind of the gatekeeper here. Email your questions to us, important part of the show at spitzersuniverse at EWTN.com. Check out all of Father Spitzer's websites, themagiscenter.com, purposefuluniverse.com, and his new one, spitzercenter.org. And of course, Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EW10 YouTube channel and our EW10 On Demand page. And while you are there, check out our On Demand page. You'll also want to check out all our programs on the Eucharist. During this period of Eucharistic revival, these programs will be sure to inspire you, and they are all for free and on demand. So you can watch it anytime, 24 hours a day. And our topic today, the Holy Eucharist from Father's book, Escape from Evil's Darkness. And speaking of books, we have the book of the month for April is For Eternity, Restoring the Priesthood and Our Spiritual Fatherhood by Cardinal Robert Seurat. An excellent, excellent book. And with that being said, we'll turn to another writer of excellent books, our own Father Spitzer. How are you? <laughs> Doing great. Thanks so much, Doug. Right. If you'd like to kick us off with a, uh, with a, a blessing and your prayer, that'd be great. Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our capacity to serve in it. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us now, Doug, myself, our whole audience, and our staff, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray, pray for, for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, uh, Father Spitzer. And of course, uh, recently we had uh, been celebrating, uh, you know, M Mother's 100th uh, birthday, uh, you know. Yes. And uh, this past week or so, we had some programming uh, actually last week, and, and they had inquired uh, through the register some people to indicate some of their thoughts about Mother Angelica. I just wanted to read a couple of comments that came in. People talking about her wit sure. and her engaging personality came at a crucial yeah. moment in her life. Another person said she had a silent influence on me that only my heart could hear. Uh, she was fearlessly and resolutely standing up for the truth of Christ all the time. Person here who, dis this is an interesting story, kind of a, one of those little miraculous stories. I decided to convert during COVID I was cloistered by the lockdown, and unfortunately, the transmitter for which my TV got its signal was damaged in a mysterious fire. We had to get streaming software. We found EW10, and we're now enrolled in Catechesis Book Camp with a crack team to guide us. <laughs> we could not have asked for more, so that, that's great. We were there when people needed us. Another person Absolutely. said that Mother Angelica in her er earthly life was a force of nature. Uh, the person said, listening to Mother Angelica live shows is comforting. And uh, as far as female influencers in my faith life, she's in the top five. And of course, we hear about that with young people with influencers. And finally, EW10 has inspired me to be a better person. I love Mother Angelica, Father Spitzer, Father Pacwa, Divine Mercy movies. My thirst for God is now unquenchable. So uh, just a couple of comments from people who uh, love Mother Angelica. And let me ask you, what was the first time that you knew about Mother Angelica? 
Well, um, I did actually know about EWTN, mm -hmm. uh, but when I really got the insight into Mother's kind of inspiring and courageous and witty personality and, and her, you know, real foresight, I mean, which I think was a matter of grace, um, that was, it came from a fellow by the name of Art Peretti, mm -hmm. uh, who, you know, I was just sitting down talking with him about EWTN one day, and, and he started just telling me about uh, Mother Angelica. This is when I was in Seattle and uh, was teaching over there, this before, just before I went to Gonzaga to be president, and, um, and uh, sure enough, you know, I, uh, when I got down there to actually see Mother, um, you know, before I started my first mm -hmm. uh, series uh, on healing the culture uh, with EWTN, um, you know, I could see that what uh, Art had been saying was 100% uh, true. I, right. I was just amazed. And of course, it was the wit that really, that really got me at first, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, I knew I just do not want to get into a battle of wits with this <laughs> lady. I'll be demolished within one second. She's so quick. And, uh, but of course, it was all for the Lord. It was all for her faith. You could just see that uh, how much she loved uh, the Lord and, and how much she loved uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary, right. too. And, of course, that resonates with me. So uh, uh, it was uh, really a privilege. But it was Art Peretti that, right. that did the trick. Right. The great, late, great Art Peretti, unfortunately, he passed away. But he was uh, one of our marketing people out on the West Coast. And I remember Mark, uh, Art getting in touch with me and, and bringing your name up as somebody. And then Deacon Bill as well did. Uh, and that's kind of how we ended up uh, bringing you to EWTN. And uh, we got to do a book oh, yeah. interview at the same time and uh, I think reasonably hit right. it off. And so uh, 20 plus years ago, oh, I, believe the, it or not. <laughs> that's right. No, in fact, I really had a great time when I met you. Right. I remember going up to your office thinking, this guy's a great guy. And he's got a New York <laughs> sense of humor. There of course, I didn't know I would be doing a show with you at that right. time, but, but it was... Uh, it was great, uh, you know, honestly, I just love, and of course, wonderful Lee South there right. who's the most gracious person in the world, kind right. of almost, uh, you know, introducing uh, uh, me to the, the whole office there. Right. So it was great. I, I had a, a wonderful time when I first went there. Right, And um, anyway, I got to see Hansville and the whole uh, uh, area down there too, so it was great. Right, absolutely. And of course, this past weekend, we had the readings from the Road to a to Emmaus, and I thought it was interesting because uh, yeah. there was an article in Register that uh, our good friend uh, Monsignor Pope wrote, and, and he was mm -hmm. making this point about kind of breaking down the whole story, almost like it has sections of the Mass, the gathering rite, penitential rite, liturgy of the Word, and liturgy of the Eucharist, and, and he talks about how, oh, wow. you know, it was really interesting, I thought. Huh. And, he, and, and in the Eucharistic part, yeah. you know, he, he really says you got to look at it and say, yes, it's, uh, it's a Mass to be sure. All the basic actions of the Eucharist are there. He took blood, broke it, gave it. They are the same actions that took place at the Last Supper, and that we repeated every Mass. With that, their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he vanished from their sight. Okay, that Jesus vanishes from their sight, he says, is that he will no longer be seen with the eyes of the flesh, but with the eyes of faith. He now to be encountered in the sacraments and in the liturgy. I thought that was a really nice way of talking about it, especially oh, since yeah. I happened to be at a Mass where the major theme seemed to be that Jesus was into uh, 
uh, hospitality uh, in that particular story. And I, <laughs> and, uh, I was like, I, yeah. I don't think that was the main message. Uh, and in fact, yeah. years ago when I, when I heard that, even about the, uh, what Father Grishel used to call the foggy, the soggy fish sandwich story about sharing at the, you know, the loaves and the fishes. <laughs> Father Mitch, who's your, your, your confer and buddy, Jesuit, uh, he said, yeah. listen, in a Semitic culture, yeah. the number one thing you learn when you're a kid from on up is hospitality. That's what it's all about. They're the most yeah. hospitable people in yeah. the world. He said, the last thing they need to be, be giving and getting instructions on is being hospitable. So. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, no, I think my senior pope has the, the much deeper insight yeah, right, into, the, into, it, into right. the passage. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, if Richard Bauckham is right and Cleopas really was a cousin of Jesus, uh, then, um, of course, that would have been a, a highly important witness in right. Luke's community. So you can be sure that that story was checked out a hundred times right. or more. And, um, and of course, uh, found to be uh, very historical indeed. So there it is, all of this liturgical action mm -hmm. as part of this wonderful story that I witnessed by a person everyone knew uh, in the Lucan community and could check it right. out. So, right. no, I love the Emmaus story, I, but Absolutely. that's a new insight even uh, for me. I didn't see right. that before. Right, very nice. Uh, another story, Pontifical Academy for Life response to outcry over Archbishop Pelia's uh, assisted suicide comments. I don't know if you had heard about this uh, bubbling up. Uh, no, 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 I haven't, but uh, let's hear those. <laughs> but you will, you will in a moment. Uh, the Pontifical <laughs> Academy of Life <laughs> said Monday its president is against assisted suicide but thinks it's possible to have a legal initiative that would allow it to be decriminalized in Italy under specific and particular conditions. Now, he kind of made a statement and there was a, a kind of a pushback. And he says, personally, I would not practice uh, suicide assistance, but I understand that legal mediation may be the greatest common good concretely possible under the conditions we find ourselves uh, in, uh, Paglia said, Paglia in a speech on the 19th at the International Journalism Festival in Perugia. Maybe he had too much chocolate. Uh, it says, both assisted yeah. suicide and euthanasia are currently illegal in Italy, and this legislation is being called homicide of the consenting so it sounds like you know I mean unfortunately it sounds oh, a lot I like I'm personally opposed which is a real problematic yeah. position well first of all if you remove the legal sanction there you know the abuses are going to happen like nobody's business I mean the first thing of course is um, once you once you say okay you know uh, if there's a good enough reason you can go ahead and and uh, you know commit assisted suicide the pressure will be on to all of these mm. people I mean you're going to create a whole new class of victims where pressure is going to be put on them by doctors by relatives by friends by people who have something to gain and if not by something to gain people who mistakenly think that what they really want is to commit suicide and we know in this culture there's nothing better than being nice so mm. if somebody says in a, you know in a moment of uh, weakness says you know I'd I'd like to commit suicide how can I help you take mm -hmm. the pills you know I just want to be nice and assist you well I mean if you start doing this uh, you have to look at those statistics because two to three or four days later they could change their mind and 
not want to commit suicide. As a matter of fact, uh, what uh, Kathleen Foley found out, this big researcher at Sloan Kettering uh, Cancer Center um, in pain and symptom management, but what she found out is, you know, the vast majority, 90% uh, or more of suicide requests are reversed almost immediately when pain and depression are um, taken care of, and pain and depression in the vast majority of cases can be taken care of, which is why nine, over 90% of suicide requests are reversed. And so it's, uh, it's like, what are we talking about here? Why do we want to help people uh, to commit suicide right away when you know darn well that uh, they're going to probably in four or five days reverse uh, you know their their thoughts about it if they're going through that normal uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross five stages of dying one of the stages of dying is depression but it's reversible depression I mean it just it, it reverses itself after several days person has time to think about it they want to spend some time with their friends they want to make up and do forgiveness acts and things of that nature with their family members etc etc they go through this they can share their wisdom and their faith with their young younger um, uh, relatives and friends. And so the, the, the point that, that has to be made is this is really unthought out. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think that uh, this person has right. really studied the issue at all. I know he's head of, uh, you know, the commission over there the, uh, for, the, uh, for life, but I, I have to tell you, I, I just don't think he studied the issue. And if you have studied the issue, you would agree with the vast majority of, of, of uh, palliative care mm -hmm. specialists. Don't let people commit suicide. Right. Don't sanction it. I mean, that's, that's what, right. you know, they all say. And it, it should come as no surprise, you know. Right. Um, you know, that, uh, you know, Ed Pellegrino, my former uh, professor, you know, would just say, you know, that should come as no surprise that palliative uh, care specialists, pain symptom management specialists, um, you know, doctors, you know, especially oncologists, et cetera, who treat um, uh, cancer, they're the ones by far uh, who do not want um, assisted suicide. And of course, everybody, right. absolutely every advocate of, um, you know, the, the disabled or those with mental uh, challenges and, and with emotional challenges, et cetera, I mean, they are universally against any assist, assisted suicide measure because the first group that's going to be pressured to kill themselves is, as uh, one lady uh, said, um, you know, in that uh, group uh, grouping, she says, well, you know, uh, they'll be told that uh, it's better to, to commit suicide than to ask help going to the restroom. So, uh, you know, just right. go ahead, do that, and you can get rid of all those people that you find to be unwanted right, anyway. Sure. You can get and the playbook so, uh, uh, from yeah, Nazi I mean, Germany with uh, life not worthy of absolutely. living. Absolutely. We start on the far end, and then we slowly work our way up. Right. Exactly. And legal mediation? <laughs> what's that? Look at what's yeah. going on in Holland today. Right. I mean, that gal who literally took that, that one uh, person who she didn't like, gave, tried to give her the lethal injection. The lady knew what it was, was kicking and screaming, mm -hmm. claiming she didn't want it. And then, of course, she calls into the, um, uh, the room You're next right, door, the, the waiting room next door, stuff, gets right. the relatives, uh, has them hold her down while she, uh, you know, takes this lady who's kicking mm -hmm. and screaming 
screaming, gives the lethal injection. And what does uh, the, uh, the uh, Dutch uh, Commission, uh, Oversight Commission on uh, Medicine uh, do to her? Give her a little wrist slap and say, I know you intended well, so right. we're not going to do anything to you. There's not going to be any consequences for killing a person against their will. I mean, good grief. Talk about involuntary euthanasia. I mean, assisted suicide turned into voluntary euthanasia. And we know what's going on on a grand scale uh, in, in, uh, in the Netherlands. It's just being, you know, covered up right. uh, to make it a little bit more palatable. But uh, you yeah, get they the just, point. Uh, I mean, they just report it as yeah. some other way. You know, it's like, uh, exactly. you, know, you know, they just, yeah. it's the same thing we have with some of the crime statistics out there. They, they say, well, it's down. Well, it's down because you're not arresting the people you used to arrest and you're not reporting those as crimes yeah. anymore. So, Oh, yeah. Everything was COVID for two right. years, uh, you know, but the heart attacks were cut in half and the, the, right. uh, the, the regular flu, uh, death by flu were cut in half, right. you know, and, uh, but wow, there's so many COVID deaths. Right. So, you know, uh, obviously reporting is a huge part of it. By the way, in, in, the, in the states in the United States where assisted suicide has um, um, been legalized, um, uh, they don't require that, uh, a, you know, assisted suicide be listed as the cause of death. They just, you can just put natural causes right. or you can put right. some other lame, non-true, right. um, <laughs> you know, uh, false uh, uh, reason for death uh, because it really is uh, just a total lie. Uh, what they're saying. I mean, you can say stop breathing, but by right. assisted suicide, but they're not going to yeah. let official statistics be garnered uh, for this one. And they right. haven't in Holland for years. Right. That person died peacefully right after we gave them the injection. So, uh, yeah. kind of a thing, right? <laughs> right. Absolutely. They stopped breathing. Their hearts Spe stopped. Speaking of, speaking of satanic like <laughs> things, uh, the uh, Archdiocese yeah. well, of, really. uh, of Boston has called for prayer to respond to the Satanic Temples Convention that's happening, I think it's actually this weekend, uh, at the Boston Marriott Copley Place to celebrate the organization's history and values. It's actually a political activist group uh, for protesting religious symbolism, but they tend to get tied into unbaptisms, black masses. Uh, they were the group that off opened up, f offered free abortions in uh, New Mexico. We had that, we talked about that back in February. And they had a black mass right. at Harvard's uh, campus in 2014. But the one thing that yeah. I struck about this that the archdiocese was asking people to do and handing out prayer cards, and Mother Angelica was still on this, the St. Michael the Archangel prayer. That's what they're asking people to pray. Well, we used to pray that at the end of every mass. I know at EWTN yeah. we still we do. We do here. We still do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do here too. Mm -hmm. And we have, in, in fact, we have Mother's uh, St. Michael the Archangel prayer that she does in the morning. Uh, it's like a St. Michael the Archangel kind of litany, so uh, important thing. Speaking, oh, okay. of, speaking of Mother Angelica and speaking of uh, Deacon Bill in connection to you, I, I want to make sure I mention oh, yeah. in honor that Ramona Steltemeyer, uh, Bill's lovely wife, is celebrating her oh, 90th mm -hmm. birthday coming up on Monday, May 1st, and uh, I know they're having something special for, up in Hansville with the sisters for her. And there's a picture of, uh, of oh, Bill great. and Ramona and uh, Bill and Ramona yeah. again, and before it was Bishop Baker, who had been our uh, ex our extraordinary ordinary here before Bishop Breka. Uh, and so I just wanted to mention that. Yeah. And uh, she was a wonderful, wonderful Absolutely. friend of Mother Angelica's over the, all those years and was 
was great supportive for the, the amount of time that Bill spent over the many years helping Mother get the network started and keeping it afloat. So we wanted to honor Ramona Stoltemeyer's 90th birthday. Okay. Uh, a couple of other. Absolutely. In fact, I must say, uh, Bill was a, a good friend when I would come right. to, to do my shows over there at EWTN. Always would give me a lift up in this little golf cart, you know, there as you I go. was trudging over to the Mass about 6.30 in the morning. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That was Bill. So uh, one last uh, story before we get to either to the break or questions. We'll see. I thought this was interesting. On our Church Pop site, we had picked up a particular uh, story a particular priest had put some common sense proofs for our Lord's resurrection and I wanted to pass them by you and see what you thought about mm. the, these kind of common sense. The first one would be no body was ever found although both the Jews and the Romans had every reason to you know find one and claim that it was wrong so that was one. Uh, the second yep. the, the apostles preached a physical resurrection they never preached a spiritual one that was number two he's saying right the willingness of the apostles and the early Christians to embrace martyrdom, okay? And the idea that the resurrection story was never retracted, even under torture and threat, okay? Uh, well, that's true. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, myths develop over generations. There are no parallels in human history or myths uh, to witness that are hostile to Jesus uh, within the short time of the New Testament. Uh, let's see. Given the story and the strong Jewish antipathy, antithopy toward myths and legends, there is developed a resurrection story or a mystical, a mythical Jesus. No other culture in history uh, would have with the humanity that the Jews had about this particular one. Fortunately, the story's kind of cut off, so I apologize. The first witnesses of the resurrection were mm -hmm. women, whose testimony, of course, would not be valid to begin with. And ultimately, the amount of mm -hmm. uh, Jews that were converted, ultimately, uh, by Jesus. And his and the post-resurrection, mm -hmm. just some common sense things they thought kind of backed up the, our belief in the resurrection. Yeah. Well, you could add two big mm -hmm. ones to it that come from N.T. Wright. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one is that N.T. Wright did a huge study of the um, of the uh, uh, mess messianic movements 100 years before and 100 years after. Jesus. Mm -hmm. Every single one of those messianic movements came to a speedy end with the death or in this ca case the execution mm -hmm. of their Messiah. Christianity is the sole exception and wow is it an exception. So Jesus mm -hmm. dies and instead of the messianic movement coming to an end it has an exponential growth for over 200 years to the point where it literally takes over the Roman Empire um, that was persecuting it. Now, how can you possibly explain this? It just keeps going and going and going mm -hmm. and going. And, and, you know, I think what Wright does, he builds this fantastic case that shows unless, and by the way, it's not just uh, N.T. Wright, it's John P. Meyer. It's all the guys who are a part of the, uh, um, the, the new uh, uh, Jesus uh, uh, historical Jesus movement. But the main thing that you can see um, is that this is almost inexplicable from any historical point of view unless A, there was a resurrection where they were very sure that Jesus was not only alive and with them, but also that Jesus had given them the Holy Spirit. And then the, the second thing that's so important here is, hmm. is that 
they were doing miracles in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. Now, you got to think for just one second. Why in the world would God allow all of these miracles to be done in Jesus' name, which I'm sure were being done, otherwise there would not be this messianic movement that just literally converted thousands upon thousands of people per year, you know, into this little fledgling messianic Jewish church in the Roman Empire. What are you talking about? I mean, this there has to be some extraordinary reason for this, as Wright suggests. And I think the reason is, is those miracles. But the miracles are being done in the name of Jesus. Why would God do miracles in the name of Jesus through this group of apostles, you know, that were, you know, not, not, I mean, some of them were well-educated, some not. But the point is, they're, they're getting these conversions right and left in the name of Jesus. He wouldn't be doing that unless Jesus was risen from the dead, as he promised. And number two, unless the preaching that the apostles had, that he was Lord, that he claimed to be Lord, that is to say the Son of God, unless that were there, there would be no such thing as a miracle in the name of Jesus. And yet it happened literally thousands of times in the early development of the church. That's the big, that's the big one to me that, right. uh, you know, I just, it's there as a historical enigma awaiting an explanation. And I, I don't think there is anyone except the one that Meyer and, and Wright and these guys say. The second thing that's really important too is the mutations of uh, Second Temple Judaism uh, by Christianity. It's another one of N.T. Wright's arguments, but rather than bore everybody with that right now, I'll just simply say the resurrection, uh, right, the, the, we the, the Christians basically wanted to follow Second Temple Judaism very, very closely. Mm -hmm. They did not want to be you know, thrown out of the synagogue. That happened because of the conflicts mm -hmm. uh, about messianism and things, and the Christian claim that Jesus was not only Messiah, but the Son of God, that was a consequence of it, but the Christians held closely to Second Temple uh, Jewish doctrines for a long time, right? Big continuity between Old and New Testament. But the main thing is there's two major breaks, and one of the major breaks is with the resurrection itself. Now, there's five big mutations. I'm not going to talk about all five of them, but just imagine this one mutation. For the, for the Jewish people, right, the, the, um, the resurrection was, it was an okay doctrine, right? Mm -hmm. That's just something that was preached. It was kind of a peripheral, what we might call a light doctrine, but not a heavy doctrine at all in the, uh, in the Jewish uh, conception. And all of a sudden, Christianity comes along and makes it the number one doctrine upon which the truth of all other doctrines mm -hmm. hang, right? As St. Paul says so clearly, right, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is worthless, and all those who have died in Christ have died in their sins. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we emerge as the most pitiable of all men and perjurers before God. Perjurers before God. I mean, uh, you know, for lying about something that's actually, you know, moving, uh, you know, the Jewish faith uh, toward, uh, toward the Christian yeah. uh, interpretation of the message. And then he goes on to say, you know, hey, why would we do this? Why would we jeopardize our own salvation by doing something like this? Uh, you know, saying the resurrection was true and, and, and you know, uh, presenting yeah. an alternate message uh, to the Jewish faith, unless we really 
uh, saw Jesus as we said we did. And by the way, if we didn't believe in God or the previous message, and we didn't even think we were jeopardizing our souls, then why are we going through this anyway? Because all we're being, it's happening to us, we're being persecuted day and night, and we're getting thrown out of towns, and we're getting persecuted, we're gonna be killed. You know, we may as well eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we're gonna die if Jesus isn't risen from the dead. So it doesn't matter whether we still believe uh, in God and, and, and the Jewish, uh, that um, you know, uh, God still warrants the faith mm -hmm. of our Jewish forefathers, or we don't believe it, we lose both ways, and that makes us the best of all possible witnesses. You look at that, and that's a pretty mm -hmm. formidable argument that St. Paul has made. And of course, when you put it onto the mutation argument of right, that's a, that's a, that's a real loadful. It's, it's really, it's an excellent reason for believing. But I think the exponential growth of the Christian Messianic movement is inexplicable without a resurrection and miracles being done in the name right. of Jesus. Very good. Let me go to uh, a question quick before the break because it kind of ties into that. Dear Father Spitzer, I recently mm -hmm. watched your video, The Light of the Resurrection, The Miraculous Shroud of Turin. You stated that the yeah. ultraviolet radiation that emanated from Jesus' body during the resurrection was equal to 8 billion watts. Do you believe that our own resurrection on the last day will involve radiation in the same way, Linda? Well, no, uh, because I, I think, um, you know, our glorification is not immediate as it was with uh, Jesus's. I do think we're raised right away. That is to say, I, you know, I certainly think there's more than sufficient evidence from near-death experiences and terminal lucidity and a variety of other, you know, good longitudinal medical studies that, uh, you know, we are going to leave our bodies, that we will have a soul-like body which can see and hear and remember and recall and think and have all of our memories intact and even defy physical uh, processes and laws by going through walls and defying gravity. But all that being said, that's not the glorified body. Mm -hmm. But Jesus has an instantaneous transition. And I just think, you know, that when he um, uh, literally is risen from the dead, he is just already, he's, he, you get that image, that huge amount of radiation emblazoned on, you know, emblazing the image on the, cross, on the cloth so mm -hmm. accurately. Uh, what you're basically seeing there is, um, is um, you know, uh, Jesus being transformed from you know his physical right. body okay. to his glorified physicality, and so all of that I think is uh, is uh, really important, and uh, that will happen mm -hmm. to us. Um, um, but I don't see it happening to us, um, you know, in the near-death experience studies. Uh, I do think that happens in a later phase, mm -hmm. perhaps after uh, you know the the last judgment, or perhaps some other. Okay. way or time. I, of course, believe that Mary was glorified right away. And I do see, you know, some evidence that, like in the case of St. Stephen or something, uh, perhaps there was uh, some form of that happening. And, mm -hmm. of course, I, uh, I pray to my, uh, my saints, and I love to think that right. they are glorified, but uh, I have no you know, doctrinal basis right. for believing it, but if St. Teresa of Avila is not glorified, I don't know what, what I can say. Uh, right. I mean, uh, she's Absolutely. like a, a spiritual mentor there. <laughs> right, it uh, leaves us the rest of us in a lurch, so we're going to take a break, and we'll yeah. be back with much more with the one and only Father Spitzer answering your questions first up, and then talking about the Eucharist, part two of Father Spitzer's universe. Stay with us.
Well, we thank you so much for staying with us here in the heart of Father Spitzer's universe, coming to you from the mothership in Irondale, Alabama. And of course, out on the coast at our studios at the Christ Cathedral, we have our own Father Spitzer. Picking up on uh, the last <laughs> question having to do uh, touching base with the resurrection and then ultimately the shroud, uh, which I think you know something about. Yeah. Here's another question. Uh, oh, dear, yeah. <laughs> dear, dear Father Spitzer, can you comment on a relationship between the Vale of Montepello, the Shroud of Turin, and the Oviedo cloth? Are these three objects connected to each other? This is from Marianne. Marianne, I am uh, not sure about the, the Montepello image because honestly there has not been a lot of at least published scientific study that has been done on that. So uh, truly I am n no more informed about that than you are. However, in the case of the face cloth of Oviedo and the Shroud of Turin, the Shroud of Turin is the most scientifically investigated historical artifact in history. The most, by far. Like 10, 20, 30 times more scientific investigation than any other historical artifact. So that one I'm very familiar with, and I can say I believe, you know, and, and I have to say this, you know, just from the vantage point of science, right? I'm 99.99999% sure that that is really the burial cloth of Jesus. I simply do not see how the image could have gotten on that cloth without a huge burst of radiation. Whether it's particle radiation, whether it's light radiation, I'm not sure. but. Whatever the source of radiation, it's powerful, it's miraculous. There's just no way that any you know, uh, 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 decomposing corpse could ever produce such an image uh, with such a, uh, an amount of radiation and power. I mean, uh, unless you know, every single solitary stable atomic uh, nucleus in that, uh, in that uh, body is disintegrating at the same time, giving rise to a low temperature nuclear reaction. That's the particle radiation hypothesis. Or six to eight billion uh, watts of um, you know, about a half a million searchlights worth of light energy is emerging from that body for one forty billionth of a second vacuum ultraviolet uh, radiation that's culminated. So you, you, you take your pick, it's a miracle. And by the way, those 372 blood stains on that, on that cloth, every single one of them has you know, uh, AB blood type, human hemoglobin, human immunoglobulins, and a mixture of ferritin and creatinine, uh, which synthesis, by the way, only happens in people experiencing a heavy polytrauma. Right. Hmm. Mm, sounds very similar uh, to uh, Jesus' crucifixion, et cetera, et cetera. And it describes and actually validates the detailed gospel accounts of the unique crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Yeah, do I think it's authentic? I totally think it's authentic. Uh, no question mm -hmm. to me, you know, I, I mean, even if somebody come up with a carbon dating, you know, that's another, you know, crazy carbon dating like the one in 1988, which has been completely debunked, and I, I would have to believe, uh, you know, that N14, um, um, isotopes uh, got turned into carbon-14 isotopes, um, you know, in that cloth with a burst of neutron radiation that happened in a particle disintegration. I, I, so I'm, I'm not at mm -hmm. all certain that a carbon dating could ever work because of the neutron flux that very likely happened on that cloth. If it did irradiate all that N14, uh, which is common, right, in cellulose and linen cloths, right, uh, the cellulose constructions, there's a lot of N14 there, and that's a, a, a nitrogen uh, isotope there. It 
get, it gets converted with neutron irradiation into C14, which is what is measured in the carbon-14 uh, dating test. So all these things, you know, I, I'm very sure that right. not only the Shroud Authentic, I think it just contains a relic of Jesus' transformation uh, from his physical state to his transphysical state uh, right there in that burst of radiation and leaving as, it, as, as Jesus moves to his glorified state an image of himself right. uh, in his physicality right bam right. on that cloth. What now, if, let's take the face cloth of OVA. Yeah, I was going to oh, ask sorry. you about that. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, that's what I, where I wanted yeah. you to go. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. So the face cloth of Oviedo is really interesting because if you look at that face cloth, there's no image on it. And there's a very good reason for that because the resurrection happened while, you know, um, you know, a day and a half to, uh, later, right, after the, Jesus' body is brought to the tomb. So at least a day and a half, two days later or so, you know, at least that amount of time has passed. And anyway, when they brought the tomb to the, um, uh, the body to the tomb, they took the face cloth up. That was common practice. And then, of course, they prepared the body, put it uh, into the actual shroud where it's found. So the, the, the radiation event happens at the resurrection. So that happens mm -hmm. long after, uh, well, not long after, uh, at least a day and a half to two days after the cloth has been removed from the face. Nevertheless, there's 120 blood stains um, on that cloth. You know, fragments of blood stains and mm. parts of blood stains, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I should say 120 points of congruence on those blood stains. Now, 120 points of congruence with what? With the face on the cloth of Jesus Christ. Yep. Now, that means, like, on the front of the face, there's uh, 50, uh, 70 points of congruence, and on the back, there's 50 points of congruence on those irregular uh, blood stains caused very probably by um, uh, a Syrian Christ thorn, right? The curvature, that large curved uh, uh, Christ thorn that you find uh, in the Middle East there, the Syrian Christ, it's now called the Syrian Christ thorn. Anyway, the, the key thought though is all these irregular blood stains are there. How do you get 120 points of congruence, 70 on the front and 50 on the back, going all the way down to the nape of the neck, across the top of the head, all the way around the face? I mean, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. If those two cloths did not touch the same crucified face uh, uh, almost uh, immediately, um, you know, certainly within a day mm -hmm. after Jesus' crucifixion where the blood was still, ha had some moisture that would be able to stick to the cloth, uh, to both cloths. Uh, there's just no possible way of getting that, uh, that congruence. Those two cloths touch the same face. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing that's very interesting, and that's why I have to believe that the face cloth of Oviedo is also a... Um, uh, uh, you know, definitely an authentic uh, historical artifact of Jesus's uh, crucifixion. It's the one that you know in John's Gospel, where you know Peter and John come to the tomb. They look inside and they see, oh, you know, this faith. Face cloth rolled over in a place by itself, uh, says John, and of course that would be the face cloth of Oviedo. But there's a second remarkable similarity between the two cloths. Remember, um, a couple of I think it was a couple of weeks ago, anyway, mm -hmm. um, when I was talking about the pollen grains on uh, the shroud of Turin, and remember I said, you know, the, the 700-year dating could not possibly be correct uh, on the shroud of Turin. It, it, you know, that 700-year carbon dating uh, is way off because if the shroud were 
only in um, uh, term, uh, uh, if the Shroud were only 700 years old, it could have only been in Leary, France, and Turin. We have an absolute provenance for the Shroud uh, 700 years in, in between uh, Leary, France, and Turin, Italy. So mm -hmm. you'd only have pollen grains from those areas. But that is not the case. Right. The case is the vast majority of pollen grains, three quarters of them, are from where? Jerusalem and northern Judea. That's really interesting. And not only um, do you have the vast majority of uh, pollen grains from that area, uh, four of them are completely unique and 13 of them are indigenous to that region. Are you kidding me? The medieval forger was very assiduous and ingenious indeed. Found all of these unique pollen grains and then planted them on, on the shroud, you know, before uh, uh, it was uh, taken off to term in Italy where it was monitored. I don't think so. So if that's the case, how is it that three-quarters of the pollen grains come from that region? It had to spend mm -hmm. a very long time in that region of northern Judea and Jerusalem, and not only that, part of that time in the open air. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, and you can trace right the, the uh, journey of the shroud. You can see then the next proliferation of pollen grains on the shroud comes from Edessa, Turkey. And then the third uh, the most, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, 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 numerous um, uh, comes from uh, Constantinople, Turkey. So you keep going and then find the least number come from Leary, France, and Turin, Italy. So I, I, I leave so it you almost with kind your of gives you a, almost, almost like a roadmap of how it came to Turin in the sense of its stop offs yes. on the way, right? That's correct, and where it stayed in that region, right. uh, sometimes in the open air, sometimes on display for quite some time. And then you can also see the same thing in the face cloth of Oviedo. The biggest proliferation, of course, is there uh, from the Jerusalem area and the northern Judea area because that's where it was in the open air. Right. So, the, of course, the pollen grains are floating around out there. Then the, the second thing that, um, to notice is that it goes to Edessa, Turkey. But then the shroud, I mean, the face cloth of Oviedo takes its own tour, stopping off a little way, a little time in Greece, and then it goes to Oviedo, Spain. Mm -hmm. And we have an absolute provenance of that cloth from 616 onward. Mm -hmm. So we know the shroud has to be, because just the congruence, um, points of congruence in the bloodstains in the shroud and the face cloth of Oviedo right. indicate it had to touch the same face. So if the face cloth of Oviedo goes back to 616, the shroud must go back to 616 as well. But what's interesting is you can see the deviation. The face cloth then goes off uh, to Greece. Probably they're trying to avoid maybe um, uh, some kind of Islamic thing between 616 and 700. It then goes uh, finally into the hands of uh, Isidore of Seville and then mm -hmm. it's placed in that cathedral of in Oviedo, Spain, and it's not removed again. Um, you know, so it's, there's where it stays. Its provenance is very secure there. And you compare it today, I mean, it, there's just, I, I have to believe that face cloth is definitely the face cloth that was used to transport Jesus from the cross over to the tomb. And that just brings me to one other thing. I don't know about Mont, Mont Pellier, but you know that um, that image that was p uh, painted by Eugene uh, Kazanowski, right. um, you know the uh, uh, Polish um, painter um, who uh, did uh, the second kind of painting. Uh, but uh, this is the one that was very accurate indeed. 
of um, uh, Saint Faustina Kowalska. You know, she had the you know, divine mercy. You know, mm -hmm. seeing Jesus Christ, divine mercy, and and you know, Jesus asked her to to have a painter do the divine mercy image. Well, um, she. Well, she she actually kind of, I think, maybe drove Eugene Kazanowski <laughs> to the brink, but she had 10 different painting sessions with corrections upon corrections upon corrections. Well, if you look up, you know, maybe just uh, the uh, viewers can t take a look on their right. Google and just see the comparison. Um, there's two kinds of things that are done uh, to compare the uh, face that um, uh, Faustina Kowalska, um, you know, dictated to Eugene Kazanowski and the shroud face. Now right. you look at that, the, uh, the, the pupil right. distance, uh, we, we have to enlarge the, 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 the slightly, um, the head of Jesus on the Kazanowski painting because it was painted in a little smaller proportion. But the main thing is once you enlarge it and you line up the, the, um, the hairlines of both right. um, uh, uh, images, you can see the pupil distance is identical in the shr uh, shroud and in uh, the Kazanowski. You can also see the size of the nose and the shape of the nose is the same. You right. can also see that the size of the beard and the mustache and the cut of the beard and mustache are the same. You can see that the length of the hair and the hairstyle, the lie of the hair on the side is the same. I'm not kidding you. And the, right. and the shape of no, the absolutely. lips, etc., are the same. And, yeah, and, I mean, it's we, just like, holy Like you mackerel. said, you can see it and she our friends obviously in Stockbridge have have uh, indicated that and promoted that fact too. In the closing 10 minutes, I just wanted oh, okay. to hit on the uh, sure. uh, get to the Eucharistic uh, topic there on the sure. five Eucharistic graces toward spiritual and moral conversion. You said these transformative graces are sometimes incisive and powerful, sometimes subtle and gradual. In my case, they have mostly yeah. been the latter, but over the course of time, they have become radically transformative. Why do you think do you think for most people, in your case it was that way, is most people, do they have the, that, you know, that incisive and powerful or is most of the time subtle? And if so, why do you think it is that way? Yeah, I think it's most of the time subtle. I think most people are like me. They just don't have that ability uh, to have an absolute act of freedom when something incisively happens. In other words, God would push us uh, our freedom too far. We, mm -hmm. he, you know, God's always going to allow us accept the change every step of the way. When something is super radical, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, you know, it's a, you're almost pushed into it. And I think most people are not as free as St. Paul getting a lightning, I mean, a, a, a light bolt, you mm -hmm. know, and uh, and getting knocked off his horse. Right. I mean, now that's pretty incisive. Or St. Ignatius, you know, having his, uh, uh, you know, images. Of, of Jesus, you know, um, on the road to, um, you know, there's several of these uh, times when he has these um, visions of, of Jesus that are, are quite remarkable indeed. Mm -hmm. But in any case, the point is, is many people are not as free as Ignatius and and uh, and Saint Paul. And I stand in the front of the line. I'm a. I think God had to do it real slow because uh, I choose real slow. I very deliberate. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I, I, you know, He wanted to get my little hardened heart softened up, and and so He did. You know, mm -hmm. and uh, I think um, you know I gradually went along the way. But people would actually tell me, you know, yeah, Spencer, I think you're changing, and I, I would just keep saying, I don't really. I'm the same guy I always used to be, and they go, no. No, you're not. You're actually a, a little more human, you know. Mm -hmm. You're a little less obtuse about people's uh, uh, goodness and uh, a little less uh, 
hermeneutic of suspicion and mm -hmm. a little less, uh, you know, use them for all they're worth. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I'd say, well, okay, you know, uh, I guess you're right, you know, but um, uh, I think it was really happening mm -hmm. as I look back upon it. I have no doubt. Uh, as I look back now, as you, experience yeah, that that, really as you experienced heart. that, as you experienced that, and with that, did you find mm -hmm. that people responded to you differently? Was that one of the ways, besides them saying something, that you could yeah. tell there was a difference? Oh yes, and I was kind of I, I had my old consistent set of buddies, mm -hmm. who are still my my good set of buddies to this very day. Go out with them every summer, mm -hmm. you know, to uh, uh, you know, to, for a couple of days to. To, to celebrate and reminisce and retell right. stories of, of college, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But that great set of buddies, that was kind of my consistent set who were mostly daily communicants themselves. But I also had another set of buddies, you know, some of them fell by the wayside, you know, and I got a new set of buddies that uh, were more of the daily uh, mass mm -hmm. kind of, of people who I had something more in common with uh, as I kind of went along. Um, you know, and, and of course, I'm very good friends with a lot of them uh, to this very day right. as well. And uh, so, you know, it's those, uh, I could tell, you know, my friends were changing. My priorities were changing. I mean, if you ask me, what's your priorities, Fizzier? I'd say, well, I'll take over my father's businesses, make them grow so I can have more money and power. Mm -hmm. That's what I would have said. Uh, and, um, you know, and uh, going to law school is integral to that project, so I'm going to do that too. That, that would have been my, my honest answer uh, at the time. By the time I got to my um, second semester of junior year, my first semester of senior year, it was like my religion is the most important thing in the world to me by far. Um, and uh, mm. uh, I, I'm going to be a deacon. Uh, you know, so that I can actually practice as a cleric yet at the same time be married and, uh, and um, you know, uh, um, um, you know, have mm -hmm. a, a job, you know, building up money and, and power for, you know, my family's assets and things of that nature. And then finally, by the time I got to second semester senior year, I'm going, what am I talking about? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm leaving this church, St. Al's Church. I'm going right out the door. I see this book called On Being a Priest. I thought, mm -hmm. Oh, don't look at that book. Oh, look at that book. Don't look at that book. Look at that book. <laughs> so I grabbed that book. I read that book. And I just thought, I, right. that does it. You know, I, I, I got to pursue this. I had a little experience going to work as, working as, you know, going to a public accounting firm at the time. And, you know, I uh, got in a rainstorm. Right. It's a, a little too complicated to talk about now. But the main thing is, is, is uh, after that little experience, uh, I, I went and talked to Father O'Leary and, uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Right. But uh, it, no, my priorities had right. changed, and I could it, tell my, you know, my heart was changing with right. those priorities. When I was in New York, and a very small part of your story there that I could relate to was, you yeah. know, when I was coming to work at EWTN, one of my friends said, "Can't you just do this stuff on the weekends? Where, what do you have to go to Alabama for?" And I'm like, "Nah, it didn't, <laughs> didn't quite work out that way." <laughs> you know, because he was talking about being involved in marriage accounting. Can't you, can't you do this stuff on the weekends? What yeah. do you? Giving you changing your whole life yeah. to do this, but I'm like, well, that's just yeah, the way it's yeah. supposed to be, I guess. But let me ask you another oh, question. Yeah. With that, I hate to be, a, but yeah. you know, you said that your religion was the most important to you. Was that, was was that something you saw in your mom? Yes, it started absolutely that way. Mm -hmm. And when I, I got to admit, when I was a kid, I was a very religious kid. Mm -hmm. I had this time though in adolescence, high school, uh, particularly starting in about the sophomore year of high school 
where I, you know, I started questioning everything, you know, and a very inquisitive kid, you know, a very, uh, you know, more or less uh, trusting in science kind of a kid, uh, you know, just a facts ma'am kind of a kid. Um, and so because of that, I, I, you know, I started asking a lot of questions. Then in my literature classes and my French classes, I started reading, you know, L'Etranger, uh, you know, the, the Stranger by Camus, and then uh, The Fall, and then Nausea by Sartre, No Exit by Sartre, a lot of the existentialist literature, mm. Franz Kafka's The Trial. And so, of course, I'm reading all this stuff going, yeah, oh, wait a minute here. Mm. Uh, you know, there, there, there's, uh, there's a a flood of evidence I gotta respond to. I just can't naively uh, ignore all this stuff. I mean, there's a whole perspective here that either it's dead wrong mm -hmm. and um, I've gotta prove it, or if it's right, I gotta acknowledge it. And so that's when I went, you know, I gotta get some evidence here. And that's where I sort of veered off for a while, mm -hmm. uh, kind of did my little search for evidence um, and of course, like right. I said, happening upon the singularity theorems, uh, that was, <laughs> as pure grace of God, Jimmy hands me this paper, have you seen these singularity theorems? No, never so much as heard of a singularity theorem. Uh, who is this guy hawking anyway, you know, uh, so forth and so on. And so and then finally, of course, then going past the metaphysics door, you know, uh, I'm, you know, this metaphysics class, I'm hearing this guy literally saying, proofs for the existence of God. And I thought, hmm, mm -hmm. you know, I, I stopped, you know, I went right into the back of the class. You know, I'm sitting there at the back of the class and I'm going, uh, wow, that's kind of interesting. So finally everybody leaves and, you know, at the end and I, I, I sort of said to the professor, hey, you know, uh, uh, I don't think you can prove the existence of God. He said, oh, yes, I can. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, well, why don't you go ahead and give me a little uh, shot at it here? He goes, uh, I know very well you're not in this class. <laughs> if you want to hear the proof for the existence of God, then you got to enroll in the class and hear the whole proof, and I'll prove it to you. So I said, okay, I will. <laughs> and I did. I, I enrolled in the metaphysics class. And uh, uh, by the time I finished that class, of course, I got such a good dose of Thomas Aquinas, but also an interpretation of him. You know, and then on top of it, you know, I'm, I'm you know, you know, toddling down to, uh, uh, to to eat some supper, you know, at the at the dining hall, and Father Dave Lee, you know, who was a poetry teacher of mine, who I remember to this very day, you know, he uh, he says, hey, you know, these Lonergan lectures are happening, you know, on the on the functional specialties. I said, Lonergan, who, who he? You know, so uh, he says, uh, well, why don't you come and see? And it's over three days. I said, three days of lecture. You know, I said, no, Dave, I, I don't have time. Father Lee, I don't have time. You know, he says, you know, well, you know, you really should see. This is a real genius. You should see him. So I thought, okay, I'll go down and see him. Whoa, man, I was captivated by the guy. I thought, nope, he is a genius. And so uh, what's his book? I said, what's, what's his most important book? He goes, Insight. So I said, well, okay, I'll go down and buy that book. I look at that book. It's an 800-page book, and it costs, well, in those days, you know, uh, like a, a 10, a 15-buck book, you know, that, you know, 800 pages, big book. So I thought, oh, should I really do this? Oh, man, I started reading that book. I was captivated. I mean, the guy starts off, practically speaking, you know, aside from the areas of common sense and things, and, uh, you know, phenomenology of, of, of knowing, basically what he is talking about is rods and, 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 uh, and clocks, you know, in other words, general relativity theory, special relativity theory. Then he started talking about special, you know, heuristic structures for quantum mechanics, et cetera, et cetera. I'm thinking, oh, this guy 
he's talking my language. Right. So I'm thinking to myself, I, I, I got to read this book. Right. So I started getting is into the insight. Is that why you insight. started writing? Is that why you started writing big books yourself? There that. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> people have to read That's right. because uh, unfortunately we're, we're out of time. Door stoppers, so. you know. Right, so we're going to have to wait till next week right. to hear what happened uh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. in the rest Chapter of that. Chapter 19 on the proof that, for the existence that, of that God class. happened. Absolutely. So if you'd okay. be so good as to give us your blessing on the way out the door, that'd be great. You bet. And bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may Almighty God bless you, send his Holy Spirit down upon you to inspire you not only in your mind but in your heart to know that he truly is the Son of God, truly is the one who has loved us into redemption, that his truth, his moral teaching is the path to salvation and the way out of darkness and that you might receive those sacraments so that you can always move with his grace into that light and away from that darkness in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. We shall see you next week and remind everybody, of course, that Father Spitzer's books and DVDs are available through our EWTN religious catalog. EWTNRC.com will continue talking about the Holy Eucharist next week. And on Bookmark this weekend, I've got Joe Pierce. Everybody loves him. Two books 12 great books yeah. going deeper into Catholic literature and also a book on poems every child should know. So check that out. And we've also got the apostolic journey of Pope Francis to Hungary coming up. The Holy Father will be traveling to Budapest, Hungary this weekend, Friday, April 28th through Sunday the 30th. Of course, EWTN will be covering all the events that are available. Check out at EWTN.com for the times of the specific events in your area. And I'm Doug Keck. Put us on the calendar. We'll see you next week.